What's up, everybody? My name is Athena, and you're here to listen to Vanished in the Valley. Today, we are going to talk about a journalist whose name was Michael Hastings. And if you're wondering who the fuck Michael Hastings was, don't worry, we will get to that. We are also going to talk a bit about Julian Assange and his last appeal that's coming up. And a little bit later, we will be talking about the Epstein client list that's supposedly being released later on, probably like around in January, and the three names that will be withheld from the names that this judge has ordered to be released. And of course, we will probably have some side rants. So sit back, get ready for this. Let's start with a little bit of background on who exactly Michael Hastings was. He was born January 28, 1980, and he was a U.S. investigative journalist famous for his work covering the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. He actually wrote an article for Rolling Stone that some could say was a bit critical of four-star General Stanley McChrystal, who was in charge of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, forces in the Middle East. I read the article yesterday. It's hell of long, but it kind of gives you an idea of what this guy's saying, what he is about, and <laughs> how he may have stepped on some toes. Hastings received the Polk Award for the book he wrote concerning McChrystal. In 2010, the Huffington Post labeled Hastings, quote, 2010 Game Changer. So let's fast forward a bit to June 18th, 2013. Hastings took, I guess, an impromptu drive at 4 a.m. in his Mercedes C250 Sport Coupe. And I kind of remember all of this. So back in the day, there was a website called LiveLeak. And on this website, they actually show this crash. And the way it's filmed was from the dash cam of some news reporter that just happened to be right there when this all went down. It's all fucked up. This guy is all by himself. It's just, you know, a fucking dark ass road because it's four in the morning and you see this car fucking hauling ass and accelerating and you can actually see sparks and flames. And that is before it fucking straight up just crashed right into a palm tree. And then it's just like an inferno, a fucking ball of fire. So you see this accident and you know, no one the fuck is going to walk away from this accident. So if that was just, you know, the entire situation, it would be easy to chalk it up to just a fucking traffic accident. But because you are listening to Vanished in the Valley, this shit goes a lot deeper. The FBI is involved and this guy has received hella death threats at this point. We are going to take a deep dive into his life and his death, which LAPD ruled just as a traffic accident. No foul play suspected. Let's get into the fun shit. There are all type of theories concerning his death. And a lot of these theories are what you would call quote unquote conspiracy theories. Some seem pretty fucking reasonable and possible. And others are just straight up fucking, <laughs> I don't even know. But we will talk about a bunch of them. Let's talk about this drive at 4 a.m. Hastings was known as a quote-unquote grandma driver. He was rarely known to drive late, and he had never exceeded the speed limit. Maybe, you know, he had somewhere important to be, a fucking meeting, who fucking knows. Maybe there's, you know, legitimate reasons and explanations on why he would be out driving that late. A lot of people believe he was trying to go meet someone, 
and either had hard copies of some sort or maybe a thumb drive containing new information relating to his work, no one really knows because this fucking car was straight up a burning inferno. And of course, papers would obviously go up in this inferno, probably even electronic components. It said the internal vehicle temperature reached 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. There are pictures of this entire accident still. I had a hard time finding the original video of this accident, but looking at the accident, you can see the fire is primarily coming out from the cabin of the vehicle. The interior of a vehicle has no components that are capable of starting a fire during a crash. The only part of the vehicle capable of starting a fire during the crash is the gas tank, gas line, engine, as long as you know there's gas in there. According to the National Fire Protection Association, they say from 2003 to 2007, there was an annual average of 480 fatalities from car fires. Only 3% of the fires were caused by a collision or rollover. And so that statistic is from hella days ago. So as you can imagine, as time goes on, the safety records actually get better for vehicles. To put this into a percentage of the likeliness of just, you know, a fucking car fire that's going to end up killing you is six one millionths of a percent chance of having a car fire. But Michael Hastings' car straight up exploded, resulting in a fire. The odds just are fucking astronomical that this would happen and to an investigative journalist. And a little side note, we will be getting into some emails he sent prior to this day, basically stating that the FBI was going to start trying to question some of his coworkers and that he had a new lead on some information. And then, yeah, like a day or two later, suddenly his fucking car explodes into fire. You have to think about like what the fuck would cause a car to explode the way it did. A lot of people named thermite, which is a powerful incendiary weapon, and it's known for explosions being incredibly powerful, hot, and most importantly, they cause a massive amount of damage. A thermite grenade could definitely be set up with the capability of remote detonation. Keeping the thermite theory in mind, in the video I was telling you about, at about the 15 second mark, you can observe lights of the vehicle widen dramatically to the side, the same side of the vehicle as the driver's side. In the next second of the video, you can actually see the lights of Hastings' car die. And a second after that, the car bursts into a ball of fire. All of this happens within about three seconds. And if you're wondering what the significance is of the light expanding on the driver's side of the vehicle, is the morning after the crash, this side of the vehicle was the most heavily damaged by the crash, with the driver's side of the vehicle almost completely obliterated and burned out. Odds of surviving this type of accident is pretty much fucking zero. If you go back and look at some of the pictures from this crash slash explosion slash assassination, whatever you want to call it, the debris scouter basically hella far from the vehicle. And this would have to be caused from an actual explosion caused by the gasoline in the vehicle igniting. This would also have been a side effect of the thermite device. So somewhere during the explosion of the vehicle and the car striking the tree, the engine, transmission, and drive shaft were all ejected in a singular piece from the vehicle and landed about 120 feet from the crash relatively intact, unscathed from the explosion. 
So it was kind of presumed that the engine and all the rest exited the vehicle upon striking the tree, as this would have generated the appropriate force for said engine to be ripped from the vehicle. But <laughs> if you look a little bit closer to the images of this accident, you'll see that the majority of the vehicle's force section has been punched into the tree, leaving no room for the engine and everything else to exit the engine compartment. What a lot of people say is all that shit got shot out of the car during the thermite explosion. One of the theories about the whole engine situation that's a little bit far out there, and it might just seem far out there to me because I don't know shit about shit with diesel engines versus gas engines, but in the pictures that were taken right after the accident, there are pictures of the engine on the ground. And a lot of people have compared the engine in the crash pictures to what a normal Mercedes C250 Sport Coupe would look like. And a lot of people are saying it looks like the engine has been swapped out, going from gas to diesel, basically. So say like someone possibly did. Say, I don't fucking know, even know how that would happen. But if you switch out the engine to diesel without changing the fuel, you give yourself an engine with a high compression rate and a highly flammable fuel. And like I said, I don't know shit about shit with engines, so that's kind of really all I can say about that part. So now that we have kind of talked about and discussed the whole fucking strange-ass accident, let's move on to some other suspicious circumstances that completely surrounded Michael Hastings' death. WikiLeaks revealed that their lawyer, Jennifer Robinson, who was contacted by Hastings just hours before his death, claimed that he was being investigated by the FBI. Hastings had sent an email to colleagues hours before his death stating, I'm onto a big story, need to go off the radar for a bit. The subject line read NSA. One eyewitness describes the crash as following, quote, The car was bouncing, flames and sparks near the gas tank. When he hit the palm tree, that's when the flames were higher. There were explosions and everything. No one could approach the car because it kept exploding. After the accident, the LAPD refused to release the police report, even after repeated FOIA requests. A former Marine friend told media that Hastings was threatened, quote, we will hunt you down and kill you. And that was for the General McChrystal reporting. Hastings had also worked on numerous articles critical of the establishment, including the rise of killer drones, how America goes to war in secret, Julian Assange, the Rolling Stone interview, another runaway general, army deploys psyops on U.S. senators, and America's last prisoner of war. One of Hastings' articles had resulted in the forced resignation of General McChrystal. So that's a big one right there. Remember that one, you guys. A fun little fact that I haven't talked about yet is that Hastings was part of Project PM, the international journalists involved in publishing WikiLeaks data. Hastings had said in a 2012 Reddit AMA, ask me anything, that he received numerous death threats. When he died, Hastings was working on a story regarding the current CIA director, Brennan. There were no brake or skid marks, you guys. This fucking car just accelerated, accelerated, exploded. After this accident, Hastings was cremated, even though his family had never requested it. Now, a little side note on that. 
due to the heat of this fire, I'm sure he was pretty much burned beyond recognition. But it would seem like you would have to get family permission before cremating someone. Hmm. After the accident, his wife hired a private investigator. And a lot of people, when this whole thing went down, thought he may have been drinking. But Michael Hastings had not had a drink in five years. Now we're going to go down the car hacking rabbit hole. Check this out. Some of the theories surrounding Hastings' death go with the whole narrative that hackers had actually gotten into his car, like the computer system, and forced the car to accelerate. So I found a story from Forbes in 2013, and the title reads, Hackers Reveal Nasty New Car Attacks. This story starts off by saying, stomping on the brakes of a 3,500-pound Ford Escape that refuses to stop or even slow down produces a unique feeling of anxiety. So uh, basically, a reporter went and kind of tested this out to see if it was, like, legit. And the whole test, he was only going five miles an hour, so it's not like fucking Hastings where he's going, like, 100-plus. A guy named Charlie Miller and Chris Valisig wanted to test out some shit they had figured out. And what that was is discovering the brake disabling trick. This fool has got like a computer in his lap and he all he has to do is click a button and it completely disables the brakes. Get ready for DARPA to enter stage left. These two motherfuckers actually received an $80,000 plus grant from the research arm of the Pentagon known as the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And supposedly their grant was to try to quote unquote root out security vulnerabilities in automobiles. But if you look at those motherfuckers sketchy past, they probably just wanted to know how to fucking find security flaws to begin with. And they were able to do it. They were literally able to take over the computers of these cars. I will leave a link to this article in the show notes if you want to read it. There's a video. So it kind of just shows how easy it is for a hacker or someone that knows what the fuck they're doing to take over control of a car. And this article, like I said, is from 2013. Imagine where that technology has gone, you know, 10 years later. And these two dumb shits aren't the only ones who were experimenting at the time with taking over cars wirelessly. A team of researchers at the University of Washington and the University of San Diego were experimenting on a sedan from an unnamed company in 2010. They found they could wirelessly penetrate the same critical systems Miller and Valisac targeted using the car's OnStar-like cellular connection, Bluetooth bugs, a rogue Android app that synced with the car's network from the driver's smartphone, or even a malicious audio file on a CD in the car's stereo system. Academics have shown you can get remote code execution, and that's basically hacker jargon for the ability to start running commands on a system. We showed you can do a lot of crazy things once you are inside. So one of these UCSD professors involved in the earlier tests, Stefan Savage, claims that the wireless hacks remain possible and affect the entire car industry, given that attacks on driving systems have yet to be spotted outside of the lab. Manufacturers simply haven't fully secured their software. The vulnerabilities that were found were the kind that existed on PCs in the early to the mid-90s when computers were first getting on the internet. So you guys, that whole fucking part was just to let you know back when this whole Michael Hastings crash happened, 
people were able to hack and take control of people's cars. So that part's not such a crazy conspiracy theory. It was definitely possible back then, as I'm sure it is today. Let's go back to the FOIA request for the LAPD for just a second. So this is actually a federal statute, and that only governs federal agencies. A local police agency would not be bound by a FOIA request at all. So you can kind of say that the LAPD never responding to FOIA requests really isn't that suspicious. In other words, the law states the LAPD does not have to disclose the police report generated in the course of the investigation of the death. Let's go back to the Rolling Stone article I was talking about in the beginning. So the name of this article is The Runaway General. And Hastings quoted McChrystal and his aides mocking Obama administration officials, including President Brandon, who at that time was Vice President Brandon, over their war policies. At the Pentagon ceremony for his subsequent retirement in 2010, McChrystal made light of the episode in his farewell address. The four-star general warned his comrades in arms, quote, I have stories on all of you photos of many, and I know a Rolling Stone reporter. When Hastings died, he was also a contributing editor at Rolling Stone, where managing editor Will Dana was quoted saying, Hastings exuded a certain kind of electricity. So just like a little background about McChrystal, this general who was running the whole fucking war in the Middle East at this point, his staff was made up of ex-Navy SEALs, Rangers. There were some spies in there. There were some hackers. He had like a nice little hand-picked group of people. If he got pissed off, if he wanted someone killed, whatever, he had the people that could definitely do it. Like I said earlier, check out the show notes and go read the Rolling Stone article that I'm talking about. It's pretty eye-opening, especially if you don't know about all the intricacies and what's called COIN. It's like counterinsurgency, blah, 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 bullshit, which was like the whole McChrystal way of handling the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Definitely a long read, but it's worth it. Moving back again to how Jennifer Robinson, who was the WikiLeaks lawyer, said that Hastings had contacted her about being investigated by the FBI. No one knows what exactly he was being investigated for. Uh, of course, the FBI is keeping their fucking fed boy corrupt ass lips sealed. And to this day, they were like, we don't know who that is. We weren't investigating that guy. No, we, we weren't even, we don't even know who he was. He just brought down a four-star general. Nope, no investigation at all. Yeah, get fucked, fed boys. No one buys your bullshit. A little bit more about the email. Some of it's redacted, but this is what we could find. Quote, hey, the feds are investigating my close friends and associates. Perhaps if the authorities arrive at BuzzFeed, GQ, or HQ, may be wise to immediately request legal counsel before any conversations or interviews about our news gathering practices or related journalism issues. A little bit further down, it states, also, I'm on to a big story. Need to go off the radar for a bit. All the best. Hope to see you soon. And that was sent at 1 p.m. on Monday. And like I said, 4 a.m. that next morning is when this fiery fucking crash happened. According to his friend, Staff Sergeant Joseph Biggs, who was actually blind copied on the email sent to Hastings colleagues, he said, quote, it alarmed me very much. I just said it doesn't seem like him. I don't know. I just had this gut feeling and it really bothered me. Just hours before his death, he asked a neighbor if he could borrow her car because he was afraid to drive his own. His neighbor declined. 
So, but there's no proof of this. This is just what the neighbor says, obviously, but that's kind of sus if you ask me. A fun little side note is former White House counterterrorism expert Richard Clark stated after Hastings' car accident that Hastings' car crash was consistent with a car cyber attack in which an automobile is actually controlled by a third party electronically. You guys, this fucking rabbit hole has so many different angles to it. I, I've wanted to talk about this for a really fucking long time. And as with a lot of other things I talk about, shit is disappearing off the internet. It's being fucking whitewashed. I would say about 30, 35% of the information I had found prior, like, you know, five, six years ago, is gone. It is wiped from YouTube. It is wiped from different media articles, just totally gone. So I, I don't know. What do you guys think? I think it's pretty dangerous business to fucking A, criticize the four-star general dude and his team of fucking merry psychopaths. That was very dangerous. So you got to know this general fool had to have friends in the CIA. In this Rolling Stone article, he talks about getting hackers on his team and the fact that the Navy SEAL fools are like, no, why do you have this dweeb here? And McChrystal responds by saying, you guys couldn't find your fucking lunch. We need to work with people like that to get the most bang for our buck. And that's not a direct quote, but like I keep saying, go read the fucking article. It's pretty eye opening. Before we move on, I just have to add one thing I find really fucking suspicious. There wasn't an investigation by the media, basically at all. There were a couple, you know, independent small news channels that talked about the accident, basically just because this guy was an award-winning journalist. But nobody thought it was weird. Nobody took a deep dive back then. And here we are fucking 10 years later, and this quote-unquote conspiracy theory is still going strong. So look into this shit, you guys. If you find something that I failed to talk about, send it on over my way. I would greatly appreciate it. Since we are on the subject of different publishers slash journalists being imprisoned, murdered <laughs> by the CIA, U.S. government, whoever, let's talk a bit about Julian Assange. So his final appeal to avoid U.S. extradition if convicted under the World War I era, quote, Espionage Act is facing up to 175 years in a U.S. prison for publishing classified material revealing war crimes by the U.S. military. And it's most likely he will lose his last appeal, trying to avoid being extradited here. Assange's wife, Stella Assange, confirmed that the hearing will take place at the Royal Courts of Justice. Assange had had an earlier request to appeal rejected by the court judge, Jonathan Swift, on June 6th. Assange then filed an application to appeal that decision, and the dates have now been set. Assange is seeking to challenge both the Home Secretary's decision to extradite him, as well as to cross-appeal the decision by the lower court judge, Vanessa Barrister. Barrister had ruled in January 2021 to release Assange from Belmarsh Prison and deny the U.S. request for extradition, based on Assange's mental health, his propensity to commit suicide, and conditions of U.S. prisons. On every point of law, however, Barrettser sided with the United States. The U.S. appealed her decision issuing, quote, diplomatic assurances that Assange would not be mistreated in prison. The high court, after a two-day hearing in March 2022, accepted those assurances and rejected Assange's appeal. His application to the U.K. Supreme Court 
to hear the case was then denied. Assange then applied for a new appeal of Baritzer's legal decision and the Home Secretary's extradition order. Swift rejected Assange's 150-page argument in a three-page ruling. The appeal of that decision will now take place in February. If convicted under the World War I-era Espionage Act, the WikiLeaks publisher and journalist is facing up to 175 years in prison. Assange was also charged with conspiracy to commit murder intrusion, though the indictment against him does not accuse him of stealing U.S. documents or even helping his source. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning, I can't even remember that fool's like real name, the fucking, <laughs> the fucking tranny sitting in prison. Actually, I don't know, maybe they released her, him, I'm not sure, fuck that guy. So what I want to know, how the fuck was Edward Snowden able to straight up like hack into the NSA and fucking release all this shit about the government spying on its own citizens? And he was never tracked down or assassinated. How the fuck did he get to Russia when Assange wasn't even in the United States? How the fuck was he caught and Snowden is off living a snowy, wonderful life in Russia? It's all very, very strange to me. And a little side note about Snowden. When that whole thing hit the fan, my first instinct was this was a PSYOP. He was basically releasing information that everybody should have already fucking known. Of course the U.S. government is spying on us. So I just felt like he was releasing information that wasn't fucking hidden. We should have known it. So I don't know. I don't know what the deal is with Snowden. I don't know why Assange is fucking hunted to the ends of the earth like a fucking rat. I'm not sure. But there's definitely some bullshit going on. All right, you guys, it's change of subject time. Now we have to talk about Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. A federal judge has ordered documents naming Jeffrey Epstein's associates to be unsealed. And supposedly it's going to be more than 150 people will be identified in early January. So they're definitely going to exclude three names from this list. That's going to be Clinton, President Obama, and President Brandon. I'm pretty sure Trump's name will be on there. And that's regardless if he was actually a client or not. But I'm pretty sure this is just going to be like their power move. So, you know, Trump gets some more hate by the mainstream media and that kind of shit. Apparently, these documents are a part of a settled civil lawsuit alleging Epstein's one-time fucking dumb bitch, Ghislaine Maxwell, facilitated sexual abuse of that Virginia Guffrey chick. The terms of the 2017 settlement were not disclosed. Shocking. And if you don't know, Maxwell's currently serving a 20-year prison sentence after she was convicted of sex trafficking and procuring girls for Epstein. Now, little side note, sure, this bitch is in prison for 20 years, but what about all these fucking pervs that were fucking underage children? So it'll be interesting to see who these motherfuckers are. I'm sure we already know who a bunch are. And I bet there's going to be a lot of discussion in the conspiracy corners of the internet about whose name was left off of there. They've already said that they are leaving some names off of there, but they're saying the reason they're doing that is because some of the victims were underage and had not yet been identified. And, you know, I just, I'll believe it when I fucking see it. Some people are saying this is just going to be a list of the names of victims and associates, not specifically the clients. So the people who are trafficked or worked on the trafficking, not the actual pedo 
fucks. And let's say they do release the fucking client list, like a lot of people are saying. Nothing's going to happen to these rich fuckers. They're not going to be held accountable. Fuck no. They'll never fucking see a day in court. And the mainstream media will just fucking wash over it and distract you with some fucking football or some shit like that. So I don't know, I'll be paying attention and seeing if anything actually comes out in January. And speaking of shit that was already supposed to come out, I have not seen anything released by the FBI relating to Seth Rich. Now, what the fuck is up with that? And I kind of think the timing is very suspect because the elections are coming up. So I don't know, these motherfuckers are dirty as shit and you really gotta look deeper into the reasons why they're doing shit, why they're leaving certain names off, all of that fun stuff. So I will definitely be talking about that stuff in the near future. And just a little side note, guys, Christmas is coming up in a few days. And as a little parting Christmas message, I'll leave you with this little gem. The U.S. Navy has a tradition that no submarine is ever considered lost at sea. Subs that don't return, including the 52 lost during World War II, are considered, quote, still on patrol. Every year at Christmas, sailors manning communication hubs send holiday greetings to those listed as still on patrol. So Merry Christmas, motherfuckers. All right, you guys, that's about it for this week's episode. Before I get out of here, I just have to say what's up to our top three downloading states. They are California, Utah, and Texas. That's what's up, you guys. I appreciate you listening every week. If you have a rabbit hole I should dive into, hit me up at vanishedinthevalley at gmail.com. As far as our international people, we have Australia, Canada, the UK, and Germany. Come on over to my Reddit page, r slash vanishedinthevalley, and hit me up. So until next week, you guys, be aware, and don't forget your pepper spray. Ciao, ciao.